You think about it from somebody who just shows up and, they, and, and we say things and we do things and we sing songs that you'll never hear on a radio, one station on the radio. Um, yeah, a little strange. But what does it mean? Like, that's not how we want to grow spiritually. Unfortunately, a lot of spiritual growth that we teach, not just we, but we the church, uh, universal, is how to grow into being a Christian, Christianese, a churchianity, how to grow in that, how to talk it, act it, and live it, when what Jesus is calling us to is a robust faith, a real rugged reality of what it means to follow him and strive to be like him, not just in this room, not just in our holy huddles during the week, but wherever you go. See, the true marks of spiritual maturity is that we grow not just in our language in this room and around other people, but that our life is transformed. Spiritual maturity is perhaps one of the main things that I think we should give ear to. And I have a prayer today. You know, the Bible says that God placed eternity within us. There's a part of each human. It's called the spirit or the soul. It sets us apart from everything else. There's something eternal. And, and have you ever had those moments where you have felt something deeper within you than you even knew what it was? Maybe, and this is what causes people to go searching for something spiritual, sometimes their whole life. God has placed eternity within us. And my hope today is that as you're here, you have an encounter with the divine God. As he speaks, as he touches, as you feel him move within you and prompt you and call you and prod you. And this is for all of you. If you are in here and you've been in church your entire life, I'm praying God gives you something new and fresh today. If you're in here today in this church and you, 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 have, you don't even know about Jesus, a girl might have dragged you here. That's the leading form of evangelism in church, apparently. <laughs> I don't care where you are on the spectrum. I'm praying, I've been praying for you all day that God would not pack this room with people, but he would pack this room with his presence and we would feel the move of God in our hearts. Truly, we are here to have an encounter with him. Amen? That's, that's why we're here. And so as we talk about spiritual growth, I wanna get into this and, and, and I got some things to say and I have to warn you, there's gonna be some parts where it's a little heavier than I, I'm comfortable with at some points. I'm gonna pray that the spirit of God translates me and all my humanity to exactly what you would need. You know, when we talk about spiritual maturity, God's kingdom, God's kingdom and God's economy is opposite from the world's kingdom and the world's economy. And we often see this. What matters most in God's kingdom matters least in the world's kingdom. And what matters most in this world and this culture, oftentimes God does not care about those things. And when it comes to growing up and maturing and thriving, the world and God's kingdoms could not be farther apart. You see, in our world, in our society, and especially as Americans, we value independence. We, we wear that as a badge. There's nothing wrong with that. Independence. Let me just tell you about my, my, um, my daughter, Sayla. She just turned two. And, and independence is the mark of maturity, of growing up. She just turned two and had a princess baby birthday party. With, like, like someone just threw Pepto-Bismol colored stuff everywhere. <laughs> two years ago at this very moment, she could not even feed herself. She couldn't clothe herself. She couldn't talk. She couldn't stand. She could do nothing. She was completely and utterly dependent. 
But the mark of her maturity, the mark of her growth, is her increased independence. And as a two-year-old, she is flexing all of those independent muscles that she can muster. If I hear one more time, Selah do it, from her mouth. I'm not telling Selah, she just says, Selah do it. She gets to do everything on her own that she can. Today, she can actually feed herself and clothe herself. At first, she couldn't communicate except for through crying, and then she learned some, some baby sign language, and then, and then she had one word, and then she put two, and then she has sentences, and then you, last night she said, I don't want to go to class without mommy or daddy, so she's letting us know more of what matters in her life. The mark of maturity, to mark this maturity, we have these things called milestones. Have you heard of milestones? Yeah? Milestones are rites of passage that doctors have invented to panic and worry parents. I don't know if you knew that. Like if you don't have children, then you're, ah, oh, milestone sounds great. When you're a parent, you're going, she's three months old and two days and six hours. What should she be doing? Oh, you know? <laughs> Milestones are developmental actions your child takes to let you know they are maturing. And parents, we watch for these. We read books about these. We go on forums and read what other parents have experienced about these. We want to know they're reaching their milestones and everything's okay. I mean, milestones such as how much eye contact does an infant give you? Are they pointing their first tooth? Are they standing? Are they starting to walk? Are they walking? Are they babbling? Are they talking? How many words are they saying? Are they using more than one word? Are they following two-part instructions? And milestones like learning to read, learning to write, learning to decipher the Comcast remote. There are things children must learn. If, we, if they are to grow into a, a helpful part of society, they, ha they have to pass these milestones, right? But we have milestones to know that our children are growing in maturity. And there will come a day when my two-year-old will turn five. And she may be independent enough to leave me and mom and go to school all by herself. And as her independence increases, she'll turn 16 and she'll be able to drive herself. And my daughter, who could not at one point even feed herself, will get in her own car, start the engine, drive to Taco Bell, and make terrible life decisions. <laughs> Independence. It's, it's, it's how people mature. That's how we mark maturity. She'll go to college if she desires. She'll find a career, a husband if she wants. And increased independence is how we understand maturity. But spiritually, in God's kingdom, this could not be more opposite. You see, spiritually, increasing independence is actually proof that your spiritual life is not thriving and it's not growing. Let me say that again. Increased independence is proof that your spiritual life is not thriving. Spiritual maturity is simply this. This is the bottom line. Spiritual maturity is simply increasing dependence on God. Now, let's not get this wrong and twisted like it has in the past. It's not increasing dependence on the church. It's not increasing dependence on your pastor. It's increasing dependence on God. That is the mark of spiritual maturity. The more you see of yourself and the more you see of him, the more you realize, I need you to be who I want to be and to be who you want me to be. If we find ourselves spiritually increasing in our dependence, then we find that we will have a thriving and growing spirituality. When we increase our dependence on God, it reveals that we know that we need him. 
for a sustained life of living the way he would have us. We understand we cannot love like he wants us to love. We cannot truly forgive others and be gracious, as gracious as he would have us, unless we are resourced internally. We cannot consistently resist temptation the way he would want unless there is a fortitude that comes with him resourcing me and I need his presence. And for some of you, you came to Jesus. Some of us in here, we all have different stories. And I realize there's some of you in here today who do not know Jesus. You know about him, but he's not personally, you have not said, I, I, I believe that Jesus is the pathway. And then there's those of you who have believed that and you don't even remember a time when you didn't believe it. Some of you found out last week and you took that step. But for those of you who have come to faith in Jesus at some point, I just want to tell you, that was your birth spiritually. That was your birth. And just as child development, just as in with that, there are milestones waiting for you in your spiritual development. Did you know this? That when you come to Jesus, that is your birth, but there are milestones spiritually waiting for you. Coming to Jesus is not the end all. It's not the end at, at all. In fact, it's merely the beginning of a lifelong journey of learning what it means to be more like Jesus, this revolutionary man who loved when no one else was lovable. This, this, this revolutionary man who showed us how to live. You see, there's much more ahead of you than just coming to that moment of salvation. These milestones, the Bible is clear. Let's go through some milestones. The Bible's clear that once you personally follow Jesus in salvation, he, we are asked to publicly follow him in baptism. That's a milestone. That the grace that you receive from God, the forgiveness for your sins, that you don't hoard that, you begin to pass it on and you become a person who finds yourself more forgiving. You have experienced the greatest grace and forgiveness in the earth and you begin to pass that on. You forgive grudges, you forgive old hurts, you work through what has been wronged in you. Milestones. They're areas of character growth and transformation as you become more like Jesus in your life. Milestones. You go from simply attending or spectating a church to becoming a participant in the church body, becoming a part of it, participating. Milestone. You learn to live with authenticity and integrity. Your eyes become open to the fact that there are people who are hurting, who have wounds in their past, who do not know Jesus, and they're around you all the time. And you become aware that God has given you something, some hope, some hope. And that is a valuable commodity in this world. And the milestone is you begin to take that hope out to those who need it. Milestones. You begin taking greater risks and greater adventure and dis adventures and discovery in Jesus. See, when I first believed in Jesus for salvation, I was in elementary school. Young kid. All I really knew about Jesus at the time Happened here in town. I was with my dad on visitation. You've heard the story. All I really knew at that time was that I, I, if, I, if I prayed to receive Jesus, I would go to heaven. That sounded really good. I didn't know a lot. I didn't have a lot of sin under my belt at the age of seven, unlike some of you. <laughs> some of you have been professionals for a long time. See, knowing that I needed Jesus for salvation, that was the start, but thankfully, that was not the end. That was not the end of my journey. See, coming to Jesus is more than one decision, more than just fire insurance for someday. No, no, no. It's more than someday. As I matured, as I matured in my faith, I began to find that Jesus wasn't for someday. He was for today. I need him right now. And as I got into high school and moved beyond that, listen, there were, if I was going to live a pure life the way God asked me to, I had to have him. I needed him. 
If I was going to be a man of integrity and man of character that I knew he desired of me, that I desired of me, I needed him. Not someday in heaven, today. And then in my 20s, I, out of nowhere, out of nowhere, I had a, um, what they call a panic attack. If you've never had one, I'm so happy for you. I didn't know what was going on. I thought the world was ending. And that began a new journey of learning what it means to need God today when peace versus anxiety and what does that look like. And, and I need God along the way. I need him for peace. I need him for, for, to empower me. I need him where I struggle. I need him where I have victory. I need him. The journey of faith for me has not been about salvation. And the, Well, I'm in. I'm in. I'm in the kingdom. Someday I'm going to heaven. It was, that was the start. And then it was me beginning to see that life opens up. I need him more than I ever knew I needed him. And then you get as old as I am. Wow. And you, 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 you do have some sin under your belt. And you have a lot of experience. And you have wounds in your past that have hooks in you. And you need God to help you separate you from your past, to give you peace in your present, and give you hope in your future. We forget how much we need him. We forget, don't we? And we might, oh, I, I do need him, but when was the last time you truly felt like you just needed help from the divine, from God, from Jesus? When? I got married and I had kids, and, and what that does in the spiritual realm is it takes all of your selfishness and puts it on a silver platter, and it holds it up for your wife and your children to see. And I learned that I needed God in a whole new way. God, I need you. I need you to be the dad that I want to be. I need you to be the husband that I want to be and that my wife needs. I need to be resourced by your love and your patience because it wears thin in my own natural self. Spiritual, spiritual maturity is realizing your great need from God because apart from him, things can get pretty messy. Apart from him, we begin to drift. And you never drift towards what you want when it comes to sin in, in the spiritual world. You always drift away. And you always drift farther and longer than you think you did. Drift happens. The nature of sin is that it has a voracious appetite and left unchecked, you will find yourself farther than you thought you would ever go. Private sins become pet sins, then that becomes habitual sin. Days like today, it's good to check in with our soul to see where we are. What milestones are you hitting? What milestones are you simply refusing to do? Refusing to risk? Refusing to be a part of? What secrets do you have and why do we have them? Do you know that you need them? Do you pursue him? Are you growing and maturing or are you drifting? So we see that growing spiritually, maturing spiritually has everything to do, everything to do with our dependence on God. And to highlight this today, I want to look at two men in the Bible, two kings. We're out of Luke for a month, okay? Is that okay with you guys? Taking a breath away from Luke? Don't applause. We'll be like, wow. Strike that from the podcast while Charlie's gone. And a security escort that elder's wife out of here. Well, I'll applaud for that. You guys are turn up a little bit today. Okay. The two kings, the two kings we're talking about today is King Saul, the first king of Israel, 
the first king of the Hebrew people, and King David II. They were both anointed by God and both had the greatest of intentions to lead the country in God's way, God's direction. And today we're going to take a quick look at their lives to see a couple different things that teach us about spiritual maturity and spiritual growth and what the difference is. One of the main differences between King Saul, who came first, then David came after him, was the way they responded to sin. You see, having sin doesn't make you a bad person, it makes you human. How do you respond to your sin? When convicted, what do you do? How do you respond? Saul, at one point, Saul had a direct command from God that he disobeyed. You see, he was going to fight a foreign army, and he was told not to take any of the spoils of war from their treasury or their flocks or anything. But guess what he did? He kept the best of the best. God said not to, and he took it anyway. And the prophet comes in, in 1 Samuel 15 and says, what, 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 what are those sheep over there? What's, what are those flocks? What's this treasure? What happened here, King Saul? And King Saul, what he does is he justifies and justifies. He doesn't repent. Repent means to stop and turn and say, I was wrong. He doesn't confess. He justifies. And then he does the next thing. He spiritualizes. He says this. He actually says, I went on a mission for God. You ever sin and you try to spiritualize it? <laughs> it's hard to do. But man, humans are so, we are so good at justifying and rationalizing, aren't we? He's like, I was on a mission for God. And then he shifts the blame to others. My soldiers, they did it. And then finally he tells the prophet, he combines the two, my soldiers did it for God. Like he's just trying, I'm just throwing everything at the wall to see what sticks. He justified and he ignored and he continued on in the, his heart condition. Now compared to Saul, compared to Saul's sin, he kept some of the flock. David's sin was terribly worse. If Saul and David were in our like, growth group, oh, we would probably not invite David back. <laughs> Saul just kept some sheep. But David, King David, he slept with a married woman. And to cover it up, he conspired to have her husband killed. I mean, compared to Saul, that's some Jerry Springer stuff right there. <laughs> Truly. Compared those two together, we're like, Saul, you're okay. David, there's other churches that would love to have you. <laughs> but see, what set them apart? We love the judge by sin. God judges by the heart and how they respond to it. What set them apart was how they responded to their sin. David's response to the prophet Nathan, he immediately confessed, I have sinned against God. While Saul was busy justifying and rationalizing and blame shifting and spiritualizing, David began pouring out his heart to God and he wrote it down in his journal, which is Psalm 51 now. And these are some of the words he says about this. God, give me grace. And if you read this in the original, it is just full of emotion. This is a man broken. You are huge in mercy. Wipe out my bad record. Scrub away my guilt and cleanse me, please, from my sins. I know how bad I've been. My sins, they're staring me down. You're the one I violated and you've seen it all. You've seen the full extent of all the evil I've done. All the facts of what I've done are laid before you and whatever you decide is fair. I've been out of step with you for a long time. What you're after is truth from within me, from the inside out. So soak me, please, and cleanse me. Cleanse me so I will be white as snow. God, give me a fresh start. He pours himself out. He, he makes it as right as he can. When it comes to spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, how Saul and David responded to their sin sets them apart completely. 
It wasn't the degree of sin, it was how they responded to sin that contributed to their spiritual maturity. Saul justified, ignored, and he moved on. And what happens when you just move on in sin? Does it get better by itself? No, it doesn't. I was having a talk with a friend of mine, and I said, do you remember when we were younger, and you would, you would you'd do, have a sin or something, and you would do something, and you would just feel terrible about it? And, and you, as you go through life, it seems like your spirit just gets calloused. And the things that used to break my heart don't break my heart like they used to. And the prayer, like for me, like I pray, like David prayed, is God, renew that in me. Let us pray this, God, break my heart for what breaks your heart. There's a lot of things in this world and a lot of things in my life that break God's heart and they, I'm so calloused. I'm so calloused to it. The response to sin has to be more, God, break my heart for the things that break yours. Saul moved on in that and remained calloused and more calloused while David prayed, give me a fresh start, renew me. While Saul was drifting further, David stopped. He stopped the drift. He confessed and he moved back to the path. And sometimes the, 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 the most mature thing you can do is just to stop what you're doing. Recognize it as drift and move back. That's what David did. That was a, that was a, a showed his maturity in the moment. Another way Saul and David contrast spiritual maturity is the way that they took part in spiritual activity like we're doing today. The way that they engaged religious things. They both did religious things as the king of, of Israel. Saul, he viewed spiritual activity as a means to an end. He would do this to get that out of God. In 1 Samuel 13, Saul was told to wait patiently upon the Lord, and the prophet would come and give an offering. They would have a church service. But Saul got impatient, and he started to worry because the people were grumbling. And because of the people, he went ahead and said, I'm just going to do this on my own. And Saul had a church service. Can you believe that? He had a church service. And, and, and knowing him, he probably had a good show of it. He raised his hands, he prayed nicely, he, it looked good, but it was completely and utterly empty. His heart wasn't in the service, the worship or the prayer. He was doing it for himself. He was not serving God, he was serving himself. He viewed religious activity as a means to an end. I do these things. I do this and that, and I want to look a certain way to certain people. I do these things. I uphold my end of the bargain, quote, and God should hold up his end of blessing me. It was, it was a causational, it was a transactional relationship. The heart of God sees, the heart of Saul sees God and spiritual activity as a means to an end. In contrast, we have David, and this is, this is a great part of the Bible. David gets the Ark of the Covenant, which is this really beautiful symbol of God's presence. He regains it, and he's bringing it back to Israel. This is a big moment. He's bringing it back to Jerusalem, to the Hebrew people. And on his way back, he's overcome by God's presence. And I don't just mean like he might have started clapping and tapping his foot like we do. I mean, he went full Pentecostal. That mean, that, that's just a church where they get hip-hop hooray and they sizzle in the aisles. Like he went... He went, he started, he started dancing. The band was playing. He's in front of this parade that's bringing back the symbol of God's presence to Jerusalem, a huge moment. And he, he must have got sweaty because it says in here, it says he danced in a, in, a, in a linen ephod. Do you know how we would read that? 
He danced in his underwear. The king of the nation goes, he's just so into it. He's so into it. He's dancing before all the people. And the Bible is so good, it makes, it makes perfectly clear who he was dancing. It says in 2 Samuel 6.14, David was dancing before the people with all of his might. No. It says David was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. There might have been thousands there, ten thousands, but David was dancing for one. He could not contain it. And yeah, you might not jive with the whole dancing during worship thing. The point is that David in his heart was dancing and praising. His religious activity wasn't for the people. If it was for the people, he'd have his shirt back on and be like strutting in town. Yes, we got, no, no. In his underwear, dancing with all of his might, with all of his, the most powerful man in the nation was overcome. And, and this, this is hard to imagine, I know, but some people had, they took an issue with how he was worshiping. It's in the Bible. He was worshiping, and some people had an issue with how he was doing it. I know, we, we would never understand any of that. His wife was watching the whole thing, and she was there with a bunch of Baptists, and they could not believe that he was dancing. <laughs> Wait. No, I'm sorry. It, his wife was there, and she watched the whole thing. And after a long day of worship, David comes home, and she says this to him, word for word, how could you do this so open? He just had the best day of his life. And she goes, how could you do this so openly? What do you think you're doing? You're shaming yourself. Have you no, sh have you no shame in your worship? And he looked at her and saw it's first, Second Samuel 2.22, he says, it just, I love this answer. I will be even more undignified than this. You think you've seen something? I will be even more undignified. If God asks me, if, I, if God moves in me, I will do whatever. And I will be humiliated even in my own eyes. What he's saying here is I have no spiritual pride. While Saul's out there giving church services because people are grumbling and he has to, he has to conjure something up, David has no concern for the people, no pride for the people. He only cares about the honor from God. In other words, he's saying this, I will worship and live for an audience, audience of one even if my entire life is a humiliation. So be it. I don't live my life for them and I don't care what people think about my worship because none of my worship is for them anyway. So watch me. Watch me be undignified. However God leads me. He wasn't doing it to create a show. He was doing it because he was caught up. See, Saul viewed spiritual activity as a means to an end. For David, it was the ends. For Saul, his spiritual activity was simply an addition to his life, while for David, it was an extension of his life. His going to church, his being a part of the community, his being part of his, his small band of people, his worship, everything was an extension of the heart that he had for God, not an addition onto the life that he was trying to live for himself. To highlight this, in 1 Samuel 15, Samuel the prophet goes to Saul and asks, um, asks, he asks Saul, hey Saul, you did that whole uh, church service thing there. You, you did it and you did it right, right? He says, Saul, what does God want more? Spiritual activity or obedience? What, what, does, God, what does God want more from us? Does he, want, or does he want spiritual activity from us or does he want obedience? What matters most? Attendance or obedience? 
What does God want from us? To say and act and pretend like we're all in for certain people in certain groups or ruin this or or to simply live the life he called us to in here and out there. Obedience. To walk in the way that he is called. That's true religion. Listen, we've gotten a bad rap as a church in the nation because we're called hypocrites and judges because we've chosen spiritual activity without obedience. And if we would choose obedience, we would love the unlovable. We would love everyone of all type, all associations, all identifications, everything, because Jesus did. We would accept everyone because Jesus did. He wants our obedience more than just our spiritual activity. Our spiritual activity should flow out of a heart for God. Or may we be a church that's known in Carbondale, in Glenwood, all over the area as people who love and love and give grace and are compassionate and that we follow our rabbi, our savior, we follow Jesus in his footsteps and the way he showed us to live. Not that we just come to church, but that we follow Jesus. The final lesson is this from David and Saul. Saul had a desire to please the people and David had a desire to please God. When it came to the approval of others, it's obvious over and over in Saul's life in 1 Samuel, he wants the approval of the people around him. He needed it. He needed it more than he wanted the approval of God. When the crowds at one point, the crowds of people would chant about David and Saul, they would chant, Saul's Saul's this good, but David's this good. And it would just throw him into a rage. His insecurity, his pride, his fear. He needed the people to love him. And And the adage goes like this. You cannot lead the people if you need the people. He couldn't be the king they needed because he needed their approval. Time after time, Saul made decisions that went against what God wanted simply because the people wanted it. In fact, when when Saul sinned and kept the spoils of war, and the the prophet Samuel comes to him, he says, says, Saul, your kingdom's going to end. Because of your continued disobedience and because of the fact that you don't repent of any of this, your kingdom is going to end. And Saul's response is mind-blowing. In verse 30, he says this, yes, I've sinned but please honor me now. Please, before the elders of my people and before the people of Israel, will you please still honor me one last time? Despite all that's happened, despite all the things that he's been rejected, his one request isn't repentance, isn't, isn't even one more chance. It's, hey, could, could you just throw me a bone and honor me in front of everybody? I really, really like it. Does that not show the heart? He needs the people's approval. He asked the prophet to honor him one more time. In Saul, we see a man that did not grow, did not mature, and instead chose to justify and look good in the eyes of the community. And in David, we see a man who thrives and who matures through hardship even, through, through sin. He confesses, he repents of it. He desired to please God more than he desired to please the approval of others. And in the end, David is known as a man, he's known from God's leg is known as the man after God's own heart. God says this of David. He is a man after my own heart. He wants what I want. He, he hates what I hate. He stays away from the things that I say. He, he follows me. He loves me. He's a man after my own heart. While Saul is just a placeholder, he's a footnote, and he's a lesson, a warning lesson for those of us who would come after. 
And when it came to Jesus and the way he lived, we've been studying him over and over in Luke, and we've seen as the crowds have been telling him, who, who, declare politically. Jesus, declare politically. Jesus, rise up and throw off the Roman rule, and he would never do it. He would never give in to the desires of the people and their agenda. In fact, Jesus was one of the most disappointing people on the earth when it came to people and their agendas for him because he had one agenda, to please God, to do God's will. Over and over and over. In fact, he says in John 5, 41 in the message, I'm not interested in crowd approval. When talking about the Pharisees, the Pharisees were the most religious people on the planet. He says this, they love human praise more than the praise of God. And I just have to ask, is this us? Would he say of you, would he say of me? He loves the praise of humanity more than the praise of God. What does your life seek and strive after? Whose praise, whose desires, whose approval? When it comes to Saul and David, I do not want to stick these two men up here and have you say, oh, I'm probably Saul. I want to be David. I want to say this. We all have Saul and David within us, both of them. You have a David inside of you, the Spirit of God, that desires the things and ways of God. Have you ever, when was the last time you had a moment where you felt your soul, that deepest part of you, quickened? When was the last time you felt that, that call of God to, to, to go beyond what you're doing now? When was, that, when was that you felt the conviction of God, the change, to make a difference? There's that part of you within that longs for the ways of God, pleads for the ways of God. And in certain moments, there's certain moments of clarity and inspiration where you say, yes, that's what I want. I want to be this kind of man. I want to be this kind of woman. I want, I want to know, God, I want to know that I am on your path and I will give up everything for you. But we also have a soul within us that desires to please ourselves and please others. And when the heart of Saul says two things, and these are the two sentences that will destroy your spiritual life. I care too much about what people think of me. And I care too little about what God desires of me. Those two things will rob you of your spiritual maturity. I care too much what people think about me. Like, we, 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 we can't stand this. One thing in humanity, when someone says, I care, you, you probably care too much what people think about you, we love to say, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. And in fact, the people who say that the loudest and most usually care the most. But we love to say, I don't care what they think. Man, we, we're, we're human. We care what people think. Somebody. You care what somebody thinks. You care, what, you care something. We have this in us. And the bottom line, there's a part of us that says, I care too much in this area about what people think. And can I tell you that that part of you will keep you immature and powerless spiritually? It will keep you in your chair when you should respond. It will keep you silent when you should speak. It will keep you from risking spiritually. It will keep you from living out there what you say you believe in here. It will keep your faith powerless and private. And for many, for many of us, our reputation is the biggest enemy of our redemption. See, God called us to be a force of redemption on this world, to bring life and a reputation stands in the way of that because I care what people will think about me too much. Our reputation is the enemy of redemption. God wants us to take redemption out there. And what if I say something and they think I'm weird? 
What if I say something and they don't like me? What if, what, what if, what if? You can go through your whole life living on what if they, what if they, what if they. But what if he? We care far too much what people would think about us. Galatians 10, 1.10 says, Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings? Am I trying to please people? If I'm trying to please people, I cannot, I would not be a follower of Jesus. I care too much what people think about me. Number two, I care too little about what God desires of me. This is the heart of Saul. Our vision here at the orchard is easy. Our vision is what? Love. Love. Love God, love people. It's very simple. We want to love God and love people. But the proof of that has to be in our lives. We see when we care too little about what God desires of us, it's probably because we have begun to care too much about what we want. You see, God desires purity. Oh, I desire lust. God desires love, but I really enjoy juicy gossip. God desires generosity. I am very generous, generous with myself. He desires truth. I have secret sins. He desires peace, but I refuse to lay down my defenses. He desires forgiveness and grace, but I will not forgive that person for that thing. He desires authenticity, but I will not be vulnerable. See, at the end of the day, we can get this vision mixed up. The full Shema, the Shema is the prayer of loving God. It says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, love others as yourself. There's three parts. Love God, love people, love yourself. And what simply happens is, many of us live this vision, but we get it a little mixed up. And if you simply reorder these to love myself first, and then love people, especially when they love myself, and then you know what? We add on love of God. Orchard, it is time to move beyond a faith that is tethered to our fear and our pride and a reputation. It's time to move into a, a faith of following Jesus, the revolutionary man he was, and bringing redemption to a world. Reputation and apathy and fear, those are the things that keep us from living the way God intended. They keep our heart closed. They keep our, our mind distracted. They keep our faith old and our passion cold. How old does your faith feel? How cold is your passion? Check in with yourself right now. But finally, let me end with this. There's a way to live, there's a way to live beyond this. Where you have sinned, where you have drifted, David shows us the way. If you're drifting, stop. Confess and then get back on the path. Tell somebody. Sometimes I have to just go tell somebody. I am, I am, like the guy said, I'm struggling with this. I'm getting killed over here. I need help. Begin to ask God, what would you have of me in this situation? And listen, there are places where, there are places in your and my life where we are letting fear and pride keep us from the milestones God calls us to. There are milestones he's called you to and you've justified it and you've rationalized your reasons for not doing it. And your maturity stops right there. My daughter, Selah, she's very cute. Everything she does right now is very cute. Everything. But I'm tired of changing diapers. Tired of it. She doesn't care. Everything she does is, is cute. 
all her little words, all her toddler stuff, all her little actions. But if my two-year-old daughter turns five and I'm still changing her diapers and she's still talking the way she was talking now and she's still acting the way she's acting now, can I tell you that it's, it's, um, it's not cute anymore, is it? It's not cute. It's, it's, a, it's concerning. If Selah turns 16 and should be driving, um, but instead we're, we're still changing diapers, and instead she's still talking like a two-year-old and still acting like a two-year-old, it's, it's not cute. It's not cute anymore, is it? It's not concerning. It's troubling. And if my daughter turns 30, 40, 50, 60, and she's still in diapers, she's still talking the same way she talked, and acting the same way she acted. My daughter, it's not cute anymore. It's, it's not concerning. At that point, it's not troubling. You know what it is? It's sad. It's heartbreaking. Orchard, some of you were born anew in Jesus at one point, and your faith was new and fresh, but you didn't grow. You didn't mature. You refused to step out in faith and risk you said no, and you justified saying no to, time, to milestones. And for some of us here, it's been a few years, and it's concerning that our faith has not matured. For others, it's been 20 years or 40 years or a lifetime since you came to faith, and there's been no maturing. Milestones still go ignored. There's still justification. You have all the reasons in the world for not doing the things that God's asked you to do. Not much has changed. In fact, you're still talking about God the same way you did when you first came to him. You're still acting the same. And it's not cute. At some point, it's sad. For many of us, it is time to grow up. It's time to say yes to the things that God has called us to. It is time to stop justifying and rationalizing our no's to Jesus. And to say yes. Spiritual maturity is on the other side of obedience. And Orchard, the great good news is this, that today in one decision you can change a lifetime. You begin, you can begin to follow him afresh and anew. Listen, can I just tell you something? No matter how far the drift in your life, no matter how, quote, bad your sin, no matter how far you feel from, from God, the good news of the gospel of Jesus is this. His forgiveness is greater, it reaches farther, and it forgives all things. The Bible is very clear. There is no condemnation in Jesus. You can come back from a lifetime of drift and come to him and say, I am so sorry. He, he is waiting for you, and he is waiting with open arms. Forgiveness is yours. You don't have to seek his approval. You have it. The good news is you can change a lifetime or, or a year or 20 years, whatever it would be for you, of, of lack of growing, of lack of thriving by saying yes to the things God has asked you to. He might have asked you to do something years ago and he's still waiting there. There's a verse in the Bible that, that gets me in Ephesians 4. It says, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Orchard, we have been given a great calling. Those of you who've, who found Jesus, you've been given a great calling to go out there and be an agent of redemption and life change. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've been given. Are you living a life worthy of that calling? That's why we need him. That's why we remember, oh, I need him for these things. As we close today and we take the symbols of communion, we have communion, open communion for any of you. There's the bread that's the symbol of his body that was broken, 
the juice, the symbol of his blood that was shed. These are symbols of the sacrifice he gave so that we can have new life, fresh life. Today, as you get those and you sit there and you thank him for what he has done, check in with him and say, God, what, where, where are we? What would you have of me? If you have, if you have, been, have that heart of Saul that says, I care too much what people think, ask his forgiveness and move on and ask him what he would desire for you. And finally, there are those of you here today who all of this is new to you. And perhaps you are new to church, new to faith. The good news of Jesus is this. He takes us on a lifetime journey to be who we're, tr- to be who we're truly called to be. And if you are here today and you don't know Jesus and you don't know faith in him, I would, I would encourage you to come back. I would encourage you also this. Talk to somebody. If you have questions, if you, if you have questions about it, come talk to me. I would love to meet with you. My dad, Charlie, he's gone, but he'll be back. If you're here today and you would like prayer for something, if you want prayer for, for anything in your life, there'll be some people up front for prayer. But Orchard, people, let, let us respond. In this moment, ask that question. Jesus, what do you desire of me in this worship, in this close? What do you want from me? And then let's say yes. God, we thank you that you are such a God of grace. God, you will let us go off on our own, but you will always welcome us home. I pray today, Father, that your spirit would move in conviction in people's hearts and lives. I pray, Lord, that the orchard would be known as people who obey you and love you and who reflect you, not just to do spiritual activity. We don't want to be that. And Father, for those that are far from you, I pray you call them home. And Jesus, we thank you. We hear our hearts now as we sing. Amen.